Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Unfiltered Leadership with Paul, Chris, and Kaylin. Today's going to be an exciting episode uh, as we're going to be speaking on leadership and traumatic events. And it's going to be unique because Chris and I, Kaylin, we're going to be coming from the mindset as emergency responders. Sadly, Paul is not going to be with us today. He's going to be enjoying life with his family and much needed downtime to be able to just kind of reset and recharge his batteries. But Chris and I are going to be gathering a bunch of uh, feelings and kind of past experiences of what we've dealt with as a firefighter, as a law enforcement officer, and give it to you guys on aspects of leadership, recovery, and how to cope with a lot of things. Stay tuned. What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to another episode of Unfiltered Leadership with Paul, Chris, and Kalen. This time, just Chris and Kalen. Uh, Paul's on vacation, having a good time fishing and hanging out with his family down in Valdez, Alaska, uh, down on the southern coast of, uh, of the state. And so Kalen and I uh, are happy to be here today with y'all and and uh, we want to talk about something that's near and dear to, to the two of us. And although we aren't in these career fe- career fields currently, uh, we did spend, I spent 15 years, Kaylin, how long? 13. 13 years. So 28 years of experience uh, of being first responders, Kaylin being security forces member or the equivalent to the civilian world as a cop. And I was a firefighter. So Today we want to talk about uh, just some of our experiences, some of our thoughts, um, some of our traumatic uh, responses that we've been on, and just some of the things that helped us get through those rough patches, those rough days where, uh, you know, we went to a really bad call or, you know, just just didn't have it in us and, um, you know, how we dealt with that. How did we respond to it? What was the resiliency factor? And just where do we go? You know, what 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 can, what can we provide to you to, to influence you to try and get through uh, whatever it is that's going on in your life that's traumatic? So, uh, Kalen, what, what are your thoughts, brother? I think this is, first of all, I, Chris, I think this is a really cool topic. And I'm really excited that you picked it and kind of steered me this way because, um, you know, the title of this podcast, Unfiltered Leadership, is a broad umbrella of being able to bring a lot of different aspects of leadership, teaming, um, development, all within this uh, this curriculum that we've kind of set. But, you know, you go into the sports realm, you go into, you, you know, the civilian sector of a lot of different businesses, but 100%, you either see or don't see, you see the lack thereof sometimes of leadership in emergency management and emergency responders and when the leadership does exist uh some incredible things happen i mean the the most obvious is the saving of lives the prevention of crime the prevention of other things occurring um but i think it's a really cool topic and i'm really uh i'm excited to dive in it and I, i i caution all the viewers though you know if we do share some things and if we need to clarify anything with some of the experiences maybe that we share or the feelings that we had after responding to certain things, feel free, message the team, contact us, let us elaborate a little bit, let us give more perspective. But um, uh, we will not be, of course, vulgar or too dramatic, but we will give our viewers and our listeners a real insight to some of the things that we've had to see, some of the things we've had to respond to, talk about, and uh, 
more importantly, on a leadership aspect, you know, both of us were flight chiefs. Both of us, uh, you know, ran flights, ran sections. You ran, you know, Chris, you had your own truck company. You had your own people there. I had flight of many cops that we had to, to lead in different aspects. But um, there is 100% a huge leadership aspect that is involved in being able to be an emergency responder. So, Chris, let me jump on you. Like, how... Tell me, uh, can you frame for me, did you want to be a firefighter? What, if you did, what kind of pulled you to that way and what intrigued you? What, what, what got you there? Yeah, honestly, uh, so take it back to 2001 before 9-11 and uh, I'm at the MEP station and, and uh, where they process you before you actually enter the military and they're reading a list of jobs and the guy there is asking me, the, the staff sergeants, he's asking me, uh, he's like, well, what do you want to do, Chris? And I was like, well, I'd love to do something in the medical career field. And he playing out flat up told me, he's like, yeah, that's not happening. And I was like, all right. So what else you got for me, boss? And so he started r- rambling through a bunch of lists, mechanics, you know, driver operators, these kinds of things. And none of it intrigued me. Uh, and then finally he, he said firefighter and I was like, oh crap, I didn't even know that was a career field in the Air Force. But it's something that I absolutely am, uh, was passionate about uh, growing up and, you know, as a career aspiration. And so I came in as guaranteed firefighter, which is not rare, but um, more often than not, people come in what's called open general and then they get picked up for a uh, career field. So I knew going through basic and, and coming through the the schoolhouse and, uh, excuse me, going through basic that I was going to go to the schoolhouse as a firefighter. And, uh, yeah, like I couldn't, couldn't imagine myself at that point doing anything different. And like I said, for the first 15 years of my career, that's, that's all I knew. Um, and I thought I was going to be a firefighter for the rest of my career. Um, obviously, uh, my career, uh, took a different path over to ALS, but, uh, truly enjoyed my time, um, being a firefighter and, you know, it taught me a lot about life. Um, it taught me um, a lot about love as well. It taught me um, who who I am as a person, as a man, uh, as an airman, as a firefighter. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of humbling experiences that I saw firsthand and that I got to see with my brothers and sisters in the fire department. And uh, sometimes, they, you know, there's some moments where it'll bring you to your knees. And then there's some times where we celebrate, um, you know you know, a, a fire that, you know, is burning down a house and, you know, you get there quickly, you put it out and you wind up saving, you know, some of their property and, um, some of the home that, that for us is a victory. Like, yeah, it's sad that somebody lost their, you know, part of their home or, you know, um, some of their property, but what did we salvage? What were we able to save? And so those, those moments are, are great as well. Um, but the, the purpose of this podcast though, is to kind of touch a base on, on some of those traumatic calls or some of those experiences where, uh, you know, you reflect on and, you know, you look at it kind of in a humbling manner and, and, uh, you know, at the moment they may not have seemed like a big deal, uh, but you look back and reflect on it and you share those experiences with the people that responded to the call with you. And, um, those are stories that you can share with those people for the rest of your life. So, uh, you know, how about you, Kaylin? What, what was uh what was your driving factor becoming becoming a security forces member and and was that something that you had your eyes and target set on? No, <laughs> like yeah, right from the go, no. Yeah. Um, Straight up. Oddly enough, you know, to be uh, 
to kind of put some things in perspective, it's uh, I was uh, for those that know the term, I was a PK. I was a preacher's kid growing up, and uh, my dad was a pastor, and um, I uh, uh, PKs are kind of notorious for not being uh, great children at times, and uh, I would say I was a great youngster, but when I got into high school, I rebelled big time, and uh, I definitely had my run-ins with the law, and I definitely wanted to have a free ride and kind of do whatever I want, and that affected my high school experience, and uh, um, so me you know not having any limits of a respect or law and order or anything it's kind of ironic that i ended up becoming a a police officer in the air force but i originally started my journey in the air force at 17 i graduated high school early i came in at 17 and um i originally came in pj and uh that was my intent was to be a pararescueman and i did everything that i needed to do and uh i couldn't based on some issues with my recruiter i couldn't even make it to indoc um, uh, because of things that were not done correctly with my recruiter and the superintendent. So that was my original plan. And then came, just like what Chris said, the um, Open General. And uh, I let them decide. I really didn't have hobbies other than uh, playing music or uh, anything like that. So I was huge into sports, so I still wanted to do something competitive, something physical, and I was still in uh, pretty pretty good shape. Um, so they said security forces. They showed me the classic security forces <laughs> recruiting video. The guys on ATVs moving around doing stuff. And I said, cool, let's get after it. And I didn't have a fascination towards like law enforcement, um, but I had a fascination towards doing something very aggressive, something that most people didn't want to do. Um, but my understanding was that was more of the elite in the fields of, you know, contingency spec ops and it's a little bit different than the reality of what our field is but uh yeah because pj is a whole nother level of badassery and oh so, like a hunt and you're talking about like a two and a half year pipeline you yeah. know and you're talking about and a aggressive like washout rate is crazy yeah. so that was originally what happened but um i fell in love though i fell in love with being an emergency responder for many reasons, um, two of them being, and I think that Chris, you would probably align with this. The first one, you know, for security forces members, we wear what is called uh, our coveted blue beret, and there is huge meaning and symbolism behind it, just like I would say the firefighter's helmet is, mm -hmm. or the axe, and um, that is a very large, powerful brotherhood and sisterhood. Um, behind the badge and it means a lot to us and uh, it's a uh, honoring thing to be able to wear that but the other thing that I think I jumped on really quickly that I loved is I loved deploying as a cop but I loved the feeling of that I want to cover kind of here in a little bit I loved the feeling of getting done with an incident mm -hmm. and that yeah you know even as a flight chief I think yeah. you can align is getting done with a traumatic incident you know, doing recovery operations or being in the middle of an incident yeah. and being the one that kind of is the focal point to protect the community, neutralize the situation. I really loved the the feeling of being able to be that person to influence a yeah. situation. Yeah. How many, how many deployments did you do? Uh, three so far. Where, so, where'd uh, you go? 
first one is a Bagram. I was okay. 18. I went 2009. 2012, mm-hmm. I went back to the Middle East to Kyrgyzstan. Mm-hmm. And then um, 16, I went to Africa. I went to uh, Niger in Africa. And I went back to Africa for a small tasking um, in 17. Um, and I went to that location. I went to Senegal. What was what was the most intense? Oh, hands down, Bagram. Bagram, yeah. Niami. You said Niger. You said 09? 09. So okay. Niger was hands down a very uh, it was a, a very unique deployment, but so awesome. Like, I've never even heard of that place. Yeah, it's an incredible deployment, but hundred percent oh nine, kind of, I guess you could argue like at the peak of uh, when a lot of things were happening in the mm-hmm. Middle East. Yeah. Maybe it was a little bit earlier, 2005, 2006, when Iraq was popping off. Yeah, but Bagram's notorious. Like, well, I mean, it's a massive installation. I mean, for those that have never been there, it's it's huge. I, I was I was only there for like a week because I was waiting. I, I too went to Kyrgyzstan and did a forward deployment to mm-hmm. uh, Afghanistan. Stayed in Bagram, waiting for a rotator or some sort of aircraft mm-hmm. to take us. Finally, jumped on a a UH-60 and went to uh, Fob Salerno mm, um, yeah. and uh, did some time there uh, for a few weeks uh, as an airman. So this was back in 2004 when I was there. And you want to talk about some, some crazy shit? Like, oh, they, yeah, that was that wild. Was... Flying over the, the desert of Afghanistan in the middle of the night, black, you know, blacked out. And all you can see is little candlelit huts and, you know, homes and stuff. Uh, that was a humbling experience talk about some some wild stuff and then like one of the most vivid memories that i'll have is the first morning that we're there in salerno and uh um there's some there's some helicopters there i want to say they were apaches and uh you just hear this boom 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 and you just hear the, they're blowing up the mountainside and i like jumped out of bed started putting all you know my flak jacket and helmet and all that crap on and and uh everybody's like that had been there for a minute like dude what are you doing and oh, I didn't know it was a morning like ritual that they would go out there and just bomb stuff. And um, so, anyways, that, that's kind of my little deployment story, like of you know being in Afghanistan and kind of being in in you know kind of the shit with you know, with I army think... and stuff like that. Like Air Force gets a lot of bad rep because you know we usually have the cake bases, you know Al Dafra, Al Udeed, all these things. But every now and then you get a cool opportunity like that to forward deploy and. Uh, so that was a unique experience. We didn't get blown up or nothing like that while I was on base, but uh, a couple weeks after I had left, um, sure enough, a couple guys uh, unfortunately got blown up there and um, yeah. and uh, took a took a mortar attack to the base and um, sustained some casualties. So it was, again, that that piece of it is, is humbling as well um, to know that you know it's real. Like war is freaking real, and when you're in the situation and stuff like. You're always on edge. Like, you're always looking over your shoulder. Um, you know, thankful for the crew that I had there, though, like you were saying. And, oh, no doubt. And looking at it as a successful mission, you know, the few weeks that we did spend down there yeah. on, our, on our rotation. So It's crazy to look back at those situations. You know, how old were you then? 20. 20, okay. Yeah. Like, so we were almost, we were in the same age range. I was 18 when I went. And what was odd enough is maybe the most violent, intense situation I've ever been, other than like you know fighting and stuff, is yeah. 
where I'm from in Springfield, Illinois, we had, I was, uh, I had, I guess you could say, I'm not going to say I was victim, but I was in a theater shooting when I was mm. in high school. Uh, there was a gang, you know, incident that occurred, and mm. we were watching my, a lot of my buddies and my football team, we would go on either Christmas Day or Christmas Eve and go see a movie. Mm. Um, and we ended up going to go see a movie in the theater and ended up getting shot inside. Okay. We had to run absolute chaos. It was my first chaotic situation, but when, you know, I remember being 18 going to Bagram, and first time we get shelled, like, that is probably, that is the, the big boy, big girl moment that you're like, just like we said, not only is it real, but that's the moment where you're like, life kind of hits you then. Yeah. And it puts things in perspective. And, but what's funny is, like, I'll, I'll always be able to remember, and probably you too, Chris, I, I can still remember the difference in sounds between a, a rocket and a mortar, mm. the whistle compared mm. to the zoop, yeah. and then that, yeah. but then it's kind of crazy if you think back, cause you probably got it too. Like we got extended on our plane. I think we did a total of, we had 45 days of training before our deployment. Couldn't do anything other than training. And then I think we got extended there for another month. So like, I think my deployment total was like eight months Yeah, training and everything. And we, uh, but you think about like the first time you get shelled and or that you deal with a very very chaotic traumatic incident. Mm. But then at the end of your deployment, like I remember when we get shelled or bombed, and I'm like, I'm, I'm going back to bed. You know, <laughs> right? like you're, you're walking just, around like, in your PT shorts and yeah, you know your your gear or you're whatever, like, and that's it. You're ready to go home. Yeah, but you're just like, but you know, let, let's frame something real quick. I I want to. Within that, you know, you see a lot of leadership. You see a lot of th- amazing things happen. You see it at home, uh, you know, at your home installations too. Mm. Chris, like, you've had some incredible experiences being able to lead firefighters. Yeah. And let me ask you, like, what was, as you grew into your leadership boots as uh, a flight chief, as an NCO, and as a firefighter, what kind of propelled you or what kind of set the tone for you to be the leader you are today um, leading firefighters like you being kind of the the coach and the direction there was a lot of good um, civilian there was great military leadership as well don't get me wrong Um, but some of the civilians that I had uh, over me um, not only had typically military experience and they got out, you know, after their first enlistment or maybe after seven or eight years or something like that, but they also had 10, 15, 20 years of experience as, as a civilian as well. Um, and so I, I look at their work ethic. I look at their, um, you know, what they're about, what they stand for, their morals and values and things like that. And, uh, try to emulate it and look at them. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to be them. I, I wanted to be, I wanted to be a great leader like they were. I wanted to train my people hard and be ready for any incident. Uh, and like, it was tough. Like, it, it was a hard thing to do to try to emulate someone because you want to be yourself. You don't want to be fake or unoriginal or anything like that. But at the same time, you want to pick pieces of uh, of, of each of those leaders apart and, and become your own and uh, a fire officer or you know a senior fire officer. And so that was that was kind of the, you know, the path that I took to to become a a better firefighter and to become a better leader is to find those key group of guys that made me a better person, uh, made me a better firefighter. And then ultimately prepared me. Little did I know at that time that 
they were really preparing me to become, you know, an assistant fire chief or a, a station captain um, within the fire department, which is in charge of the entire, you know, station or your um, your shift. And those are the things that I look at. The way that they handled emergencies as well with calm, poise, like just just like it was any other call. Like it, it, you would have thought it was a you know a, a chasing uh, you know bells or uh, bells or smells is what we call it chasing bells and smells and those are just like you know burnt popcorn and fire alarm activations like we chase those all day um but when you know shit hit the fan like we they were the ones that i would look to like what do i do now well now i've got 10 airmen ncos looking at me what do i do now well thanks to those civilian leaders and again a few military leaders that set that tone for me early on and and uh, instilled some of those hard work, um, you know, put your nose to the grindstone kind of work ethic, um, you know, shaped me to who who I became. So that that was that was the big influence for me growing up, and um, you know, becoming the the fire officer that I became. So you really had people take massive interest in your growth and what needed to be done because they saw potential in you, and they took you underneath your wing. What what were some of the things that, as you continued to grow, that a you let's say you struggled with internally, mm-hmm. or you got fed up with? Like I've gotten fed up, of course, with my career field on numerous occasions. You know, it's easy for us to get fed up with certain things. And even though I love, I have pride for my brothers and sisters that wear the beret, and um, there were still times that I'm like, ah, oh, man, I'm so tired of yeah. this culture at times. But yeah. Did you have the same feelings at times? Did, were there times where you're like, I'm done being a firefighter? Yeah, I mean, so this is – so I I got tagged with a lot of things. I was at Lake and Heath at the time in England, and uh, I got tagged with so many things. And I was a young young NCO, but I was hungry, and I was um, – you know, I had – three or four airmen at the time. I was leading a bunch of different programs within the fire department. I was running the first run engine crew, which responds to a majority, if not all of the calls on base. And I uh, just kept getting task saturated uh, by my leadership because I knew I would, you know, put my best foot forward and get, get things done. And I did, I got burnt out I got fed up. And uh, at, at one point, and I'm not proud to say this, but sometimes you reach that boiling point. And it was a great learning lesson for me. And it's something that I, I pass on to, you know, all my airmen. Like, if you feel overwhelmed and you're getting too much put on you, you have to let me know. Like, you've got to let your leadership know or your boss or, your, you know, organization, your CEO, whoever. You've got to let them know that I can't do all of this. And as, as humbling and as hard as that is to say, like, you want to think that you can be the jack of all trades and, and take on any, any task that's thrown your way. Um, I blew up on them, uh, on my station captain and my uh, assistant fire chief. And again, I'm just a E5 at this point. They're E6, E7, respectively. And, uh, and it was in front of everybody, though. And I, <laughs> a lot of profanities. I just saw red and... Um, I, I think I threw like my gear down and just stormed off and like, cause I was so fed up to that point because they had asked so much of me and, uh, I just couldn't handle it anymore. Like I just, and I, the problem that I had too, was I would look around and look at my peers, my other, uh, staff sergeants at my level and the little that they did, but yet nobody was asking them 
to take this, you know, take on this task. They kept throwing it on me and piling it on me because, again, they knew I would get it done kind of deal. And, uh, yeah, again, I'm not proud of that story, but it's a fantastic learning lesson for anyone out there because um, you've got to be willing to, to tell your, your leadership that, like, hey, enough's enough. Like, you're going to have to pass this on to someone else because I'm spread too thin at this point and to alleviate or to avoid a blow up session like what I had. Thankfully they were understanding and after a good conversation with them in their office, they um, they understood why I did what I did and where I came from. And at that point they, they began to task um, some of the NCOs at that point. So so you reached your point and you just yeah, lost it. I, did. I I feel like we see, you know, we see people do that a lot in work centers, but 100% I think it is more prevalent to see it in probably the emergency responder realm and it's true but you sparked us actually one of my talking points you know for all our viewers and listeners that uh are engaged in this conversation those that are actually emergency responders i can't urge this enough and uh this is a a lesson that i learned the hard way and i saw many brothers and sisters do the same thing and they struggled with this i have friends that are struggling with it right now as we speak but you know there is such a importance and such a, a strong feeling with the phrase take your knee and i love that is to be able to take your mental knee and or your what we call many times is take your tactical knee yeah sit down for a little bit rest yeah. recharge yeah. and emergency responders need it yeah no doubt and yeah. but that's the that's the other there's a double-edged sword with that because we grow up in a culture, in as emergency responders, we grow up in a culture where you have to kind of carry a certain aptitude, but you have to kind of carry uh, very strong s skills and very strong focus and mindset that mm -hmm. we almost self-inflict by thinking we can't take a knee. Yeah. We, we we hurt ourselves by thinking no I can push it out I can do it my guys yeah. my guys so many people it. look up to you yeah my guys need it they depend on me especially as a flight chief mm -hmm. or let's say as the leader my guys need me I'm good I can this I can I can survive this right and we could easily just damage ourselves yeah. more and more and more yeah so I'll, I'll share a story and get kind of these you know traumatic stories going and stuff um, so this is 2011. I'm at Herbert Field, fairly new there. And uh, no, no, excuse me, 2014. 2014, fairly new at uh, Herbert Field, and get a call. Um, we're right there on the Sound uh, in the Panhandle, Florida, and there's a beach on base, and we uh, we respond to this uh, gentleman who um, is unresponsive on the beach. And I get there, me and one of the civilian firefighters who I'd known for years and years at that point um, from our time at Eglin, uh, we start performing CPR. This guy's unresponsive. He's, he's not alert. Um, you know, and so start doing CPR on him. And uh, all I can hear in like the background is his wife shouting, don't leave me. And so uh, if you've never, and I'd be willing to bet a majority of our listeners have never performed CPR on someone um, that in itself is, is traumatic like I've done it a handful of times um, but to have the family there uh, was a huge piece of it and uh, later on I found out that it was his daughter's birthday as well and that's why they were out oh there oh my gosh and 
Um, so I'm sitting there performing CPR and a bigger gentleman and we get the AED hooked up to him and uh, the medics arrive. Uh, at that point, we make the determination like this is a load and go kind of deal. And, um, you know, unfortunately, he wound up passing away. Heart attack? And, yeah, massive, massive heart attack. Uh, and his dad um, passed away from the same thing. Huge, massive, just widow maker type deal. And uh, um, his brother, who's there on the beach visiting, came by the fire station the next day to tell us, hey, thank you um, for what you did. Um, and, uh, you know, attempting to save his brother's life on the, on the beach that day. And... Uh, to kind of give us some updates on, on what had happened and transpired at the hospitals. Because that's, that's a lot of things we don't hear, you know, the aftermath. What happened after the response? For sure. Did they make it? Did they not make it? Yeah, Did, for sure. you know, uh, um, you know, a sexual assault or, uh, you know, physical altercation, spousal abuse, things like that. You don't typically hear, you know, you see what happened on scene, but you never hear what happens afterwards. And so, you're always, uh, like, for you guys and for us, like, you're always curious because you want to sure. see, you know, you want to see... Did, did your work did your contribution towards saving a life did yeah. it pay like did right. it did you help yeah um but you're right you always want to see what was the after effect of an entire incident yeah. post incident right and so that that was relieving to hear the you know the brother come by and and say the family you know wanted to pass on our their gratitude to us for you know responding to the call and and trying to save his brother's life well, my dad had flown in um, about a week, and stepmom, they flew in about a week later, right? And they, uh, I hadn't seen my dad at that point in five years. We'd just gotten back. I'd been in Honduras for a year, England for three years. So we'd been overseas for this long time. Been at Hurlburt for about a year at that point, and my dad and stepmom come to visit. And uh, so in my head, haven't seen my dad in five years, just responded to this gentleman who's pretty close to my dad's age he was a little bit older and uh and then it just hit me like out of nowhere just like you know a right hook from tyson it, it was bad and i i was in my bathroom like curled up in a ball um and just uncontrollably sobbing because i i, I in my head i'm like that could have been my dad and i never you know what if that would have happened in that five year span and that's that's something in the military too that we have to deal with that's that's kind of traumatic as well i don't want to say necessarily traumatic but it's just a a hardship of the the profession um and like my wife came in megan she came in and like consoled me and i i couldn't stop like you know crying and stuff and finally i got myself under control but it just like you don't know you think certain responses like it, it took a week maybe two weeks or whatever it was after my, after that incident before it finally hit me. And you don't know when that's going to be. You don't know when that death of that child or, you know, that victim that got ejected from a car or something like that. Like you don't know when that's going to hit you. It may never hit you. You may never think about it. You know, it may pop in your mind um, once, you know, in a random thought or whatever. But um, for me that like, that was one of the moments where like a call, like I didn't expect it to, to affect me. But because of the situation afterwards and seeing my dad and all those things, like emotions were you know, like overwhelming at that point. And uh, thankfully, it was just it was just that one moment that I, I I think I just needed to get it out of me and get those feelings out because I had suppressed them maybe. And uh, and after that, I was okay. What did you learn from all that? Like, did it did you learn when you observed after that as a leader? Did you learn that? Did you feel more comfortable being able to do that in the future if you had to, letting your emotions out? 
or did you learn that oh I could have done this better I could have reflected a little bit better or how did that like when you reflected to all that afterwards did you learn something yeah I think there's you know an important learning lesson out of any response I mean you could pull something you know out of any call that you go to but especially those ones the traumatic ones the suicides the the deaths um you know the memorable you know the, the i don't say the memorable ones but the ones that definitely well, stick out I in mean, your mind that, they are memorable but, but that's, they're, yeah the, the, i hate to say it that is the that's the term yeah it's not memorable in the favor like i always want to remember it's like right. you will always have things that will be embedded with you yeah for sure and so i think the big learning lesson from that one is um if you have those feelings don't again don't try to suppress them don't try to like block them down and think that oh i've got to be strong for um for the people i work with or i got to be strong for my family like everybody has their their moments their weak moments where you know sometimes a good cry is all you need sometimes you know seeking out uh mental health is you know an absolute opportunity for you know you go see those folks as well and talk to a professional about some of the things you saw some of the things you did um and there's so many levels of trauma they were just speaking to the effects of trauma as a first responder but you know there's childhood trauma there's trauma you go through in your adult life as well both personally and professionally and so it is this episode doesn't necessarily pertain to just our profession and our career because you know anybody can go through one of those different levels of trauma um, and be affected. Some of the times the smallest incident could have the biggest impact on you. And sometimes the biggest inc- incident could have little or no impact on you. You never know how it's going to hit you. I think the biggest ones are obviously child deaths are, are huge. Um, but other than that, you just don't know how or when it's going to hit you. And so, for me, I have we have those conversations after a big call like that. We have a what we call a cr- critical incident stress debriefing, and mental health will come over. The chaplain will come over. Right. Our leadership yeah. will come over. Our commander, shirt chief, everybody will stop by, and it's our it's our opportunity to open up and like, hey, and it's right afterwards, so it's tough to convey your feelings and thoughts hours after an incident like that because you're still processing it in your mind. There's no way to like sort it through your head like what the heck did i just go through in that short period of time um and typically these these um cisds uh happen within the first 24 hours they have to right it's it's something that you have to do within 24 hours that's when you're still in shock and all you really are and so again it's tough to like talk about it because you again you're still thinking about like and you're exhausted from the call potentially, yeah. you know, you're mentally drained, physically drained, and you're, you're like, you know, I got nothing. And then later on down the line, like, man, this is kind of hitting me. Or, oh, I'm having, you know, these ideations that, you know, of these pictures in my head of, you know, the scene or the incident itself. And um, that's when I would encourage others to, uh, to seek out, you know, more help. Yeah, for sure. Uh, let's put something in perspective for all of our viewers and listeners because uh, – I'm going to ask Chris something, and it may prove something for a lot of people that are either friends with emergency responders, have emergency responders, and their families. But, Chris, I'm going to ask you something that we could ask anybody, but you probably don't know how many incidents you've ever responded to, right? I mean, there's probably thousands. no way to get Yeah, thousands, okay? But you probably know a range off the top of your head. May it, may it be a specific number or a range how many fatalities you've gone to? I would imagine 
Yeah. What um, would that number be? Um, I mean, the range, I mean, probably, I would say 40s, I, I've seen. 40 fat, uh, over 40 fatalities. Mm-hmm. Large number. Yeah. Right? Large yeah. number. And, you know, for all our viewers and listeners, there's a hunt, that proven right there is for a lot of cops, for a lot of uh, EMS, for a lot of firefighters, some of your most proudest moments are after an incident when you respond to something and you do recovery operations or you neutralize an event and you feel so proud of what you've done for your community and what, uh, how you've led your forces, your efforts and your logistics to be able to protect people, to bring people back, to save children and families and um, to prevent more danger or crime, so on. Um, you don't always remember those numbers. You remember some of the incidents, but you, you lose, as time goes on, you lose numbers and you lose details of events. But what's sad is you always remember the hard ones and you always remember the tough ones that always go. And um, it's difficult to go with that. And yeah. I'll share a story with everybody that I use as a learning lesson for all my cops um, and my security forces members, you know, as we're talking about certain things, but just like you, Chris, I have nowhere, nowhere had to respond to as many fatalities mm-hmm. that you have. No, a lot of those are like motor vehicle accidents and For things sure. like that. Um, a good grouping is, um, you know, suicides. Uh, and then I had 11 deaths in one call. Um, UH 60 crashed in the sound at Herbert field. And, um, we we responded to that. And wow! At that point, it, it was a recovery effort. It wasn't a, a rescue. It was a, it was a recovery. But um, but no, I want to hear like about your your story. Brother. So same like I, I I've had to respond to uh, suicides and you know that's not an easy thing uh, at the time too. Oddly enough, we didn't necessarily respond to it, but it definitely was a presence there. But at the time, you know, in Bagram, um, Bagram for some reason had at the time when I was there had a very um, a big issue with um what's the term that i'm looking for uh passing of unborn infants and yeah, um, sids and things like that or, not only that but they were or unborn i'm sorry un- uh, unborn unborn and they were i'm sorry uh, we saw a lot of uh we saw a lot of fetuses and babies and portageons oh, wow. of service members that uh females that had oh and downrange downrange that oh, had gosh. uh had passed their their fetus and uh, somehow had hidden that maybe they were pregnant at times, but we we saw a lot of fetuses and unborn yeah. kids and portageons and you know those things aren't those things are traumatic in itself, but it's it's very sad, right? Yeah. But I I always yeah. took this learning lesson with a lot of my cops and especially the young ones. You know, me coming in when I was seventeen taught me a lot of stuff. I was not only immature, but I had to learn a lot of things. Um, just like you, Chris, I had a lot of people take me underneath their wing and teach me things. And um, one of the biggest lessons that I always learned with going to certain responses was I always had to prepare for anything. And I had to be open. As you go through investigation process or uh, interviewing certain people or speaking with certain people, witnesses, victims, suspects, you have to be open to anything that could have or will occur. And uh, that's scary to not know either a background of someone that you're dealing with or to not know what they could do, their capabilities, so on. And half, about halfway through my career, I think I had just gotten back from my second deployment. Um, 
I had to respond with another NCO to a uh, reports of child abuse at mm-hmm. a middle school. Young kid, um, I believe at the time he's about seven years old, and uh, he had bruises on mm-hmm. his arm. And the we respond, and of course, there's certain protocol that has to happen anytime that it's a, as you know, child abuse case. A lot of agencies are involved in that, but. Um, the teacher was concerned, and the child had sworn up and down with the teacher that it was from roughhousing out in the playground, mm. and the bruises were just playing with his friends. Mm. So we go. Uh, this was a unique dynamic of this family. So let me frame this family. So two commanders, yeah. married to each other. Okay. Female commander with a male biological son, okay. who is the boy, about seven, eight years old. Married to another commander, mm-hmm. male commander, with a female biological daughter. Okay. Older. Tracking. She was about, I want to say she was like 11 years old. So older stepsister, but both parents had opposite sex uh, children. Yeah. Um, female wife, commander, mm-hmm. deployed. Okay. So the male, uh, the, the male was the parent of both children at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how long they had been married. I, I know that was a few years, but I just don't know specifics of how long. But we had notified him, and uh, at that point in time, you started looking at him as like, hey, we got some questions, we can start talking to you, so on, and the mm-hmm. agencies are involved. And, um, but after a lot of coordination with other agencies, it was I, there was uh, some video recordings of the playground after we got everything said and done, and... Uh, we were able to really take look at video footage and look at the the location of the boys' bruises mm-hmm. and to look at how he was roughhousing certain kids on the playground a few days prior. And everything was, it seemed absolutely legit. Like you could see, we saw the kid get tackled, pushed on the ground, playing football with his friends. It's in the, matching the same ligament of his arm yeah. or a part of his arm. So it seemed legit. Yeah. About two weeks passed by and... Uh, you know, it's just like you, you don't see the end of something that comes after that. You kind of, you secure your scene, you get all the information. As cops, we pass it on to the agencies that need to know it. Right. And um, about two weeks pass, and we get a call for the same incident mm-hmm. um, for the same young boy. Okay. We go back. But this situation is different. Boy had gone to the bathroom, and he was pissing blood. Mm. Urinating blood. And I mean straight blood yeah and uh he was in excruciating pain yeah and uh he he had ran back to his classroom and told his teacher that and he's just absolutely bawling and mm-hmm. um they went back and he showed her the toilet and everything so immediately like with a situation like that in the age that he was at EMS, you know, ambulance is on his way. We're going to be able to escort the ambulance and, you know, start figuring out what we need to do. And so there was a lot of things happening at the time. And, you know, you kind of put things in perspective as, as a coalition of emergency responders, when you have certain calls for all our viewers, you will literally, you guys can probably guess, but, you know, when things are, when certain calls are dispatched out, you have cops responding in different locations you got the firehouse moving out you got ems coming from either the clinic the hospital or a firehouse and you have all these people that are literally these different agencies that have different responsibilities all converging on converging this one, yeah, on to scene, one yeah. thing which is unbelievable when it's done correctly like you take an active shooter situation when it's done correctly it's beautiful mm-hmm. because 
everyone is synchronized everyone is together and it's wonderful because there's one common purpose but we go back and uh we had a couple other squad cars there and we needed one to start escorting the child to the local hospital so that he can start getting uh, evaluated and seeing what's going on and while still screaming in agonizing pain and at that point in time though we also had a couple guys that were going to go speak to his stepsister who's older and let her know hey we need you to get your brother's homework and uh we need you to get his all his belongings and when we pulled her out of the class uh there was that's when the questions started being asked because for some reason there was a lot of uh, her focus was not on her little brother her focus was on when's my dad coming here where's dad at and uh, when's he getting here and as much as we would talk about her little brother like hey your little brother's gonna be okay we'll take care of him she really did not care and it made us start thinking about some things but the quite automatically her retort back constantly was like where's dad where's dad and it just made us start being very curious about things yeah so at that point in time, we knowing that we had a previous call with this child earlier, weeks ago, weeks prior, we knew we needed to start asking some more questions, start looking deeper, and we asked for the male to come, the male parent to come to BDoc and start speaking to him. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, hundred percent, this was the biggest thing that ever taught me anything. Is weeks prior. A little boy had bruises and you think that okay you, you look at everything you look at the footage and you think everything's fine mm-hmm. and you think okay everything checks out teacher did a great thing she was worried about something she made the right calls mm-hmm. you feel that you did the right thing and everything's neutralized and now you're looking at this little boy and we're looking at him and like this kid's screaming in pain he's urinating blood what's going on with this kid mm-hmm. and the sister has no interest in what's happening to him and they've grown up with each other for a few years now yeah and after the boy's stomach was x-rayed, we find out that his stomach was full of screws. Oh, my God. And uh, what we find out at the end, through a lot of investigating and a lot of coordination with other agencies and a lot of... Yeah, because at this point, OSI is getting involved and in your guys' investigation OS, team. Huge, huge notifications are yeah. being made. Huge. A lot of sad things are happening. Yeah, yeah. We find out that... Does mom come back from deployment? So, we find out that... Well, there's more, though. And before that happened, before the mom had to be notified, Mm -hmm. we find out that he had been having full penetrating penetrating sex with his daughter for years. That, to her, was daddy's love. Mm -hmm. And that she had known that, that to be. And that... For the past few months, while the mother was deployed, the bigger the issue that the little boy would make, let's say dropping a plate, smashing a plate, or coming home late, the more severe, the longer the screw. So at the end of the day, I believe this young boy had, I think, about 11 screws in his stomach. Yeah. Longer screw was about like an inch and a half. And little screws, and uh, the majority of them little, they had been sitting in his stomach for months rotting tearing up his inside you know and finally his stomach I, i'm not gonna i have no idea uh, you know medically yeah. like if it was his stomach his sack or yeah. what it was but it tore him open that he was bleeding yeah. so bad internally wow. and uh so later on after everything's done obviously like now we have a severe case um 
and we're dealing with this male mm-hmm. and uh, the mother had to be called and I don't know who called the mother but I know the background of when I was uh, what we were told afterwards when we had to do the same thing like you're talking about do a mm-hmm. little bit of deep brief because mm-hmm. there was some severe things there that happened yeah. is they could not tell the mother what had happened over the phone mm-hmm. she was put on a red eye that night sent back from her deployment um and they could not tell her what happened on the phone because of how traumatic it was. But she, all she wanted to know is, uh, is everyone safe? And they had to still tell her that everyone's safe, everyone's alive, but your son is in the hospital right now. He's going to be having an emergency surgery. Mm-hmm. They couldn't tell her why, though. And, you know, you, on top of that, you just kind of think, you know, how the mother felt. You being a parent, right. I being a parent, let's say we're deployed, you can't even be told how bad a situation is with your child and she's coming back yeah worst case scenario probably pops in your mind like yeah i may not make it back in time to say goodbye to my son oh exactly right but you know i looked at that whole situation afterwards and i had to i had to i don't think i took a knee but i remember i had to talk to a lot of people about that because at one point in time two weeks prior we were looking at this little guy and mm. you're thinking okay got it he's just roughhousing with his friends he's having the time of his life everything's good yeah. mill to mill family everything's right. okay and then you're looking at this kid now and you're thinking oh my god when I saw him weeks prior the kid had screws in his stomach yeah. then and it's so incredibly sad but you know going back to this whole perspective of this conversation mm. leadership being influential, making certain actions, yeah. having the discussions afterward and the recovery. Right. As an emergency responder, it's different play. Yeah. It's a L- different field. Little boy made it, yeah? Little boy made it. Okay. Little boy made it. All right. So, yeah, I mean, it does. It puts a lot of things into perspective, and you're just like, man, we're in the freaking, you know, United States Air Force. We're military members, but that doesn't, ex- like you find some of the worst people in the military, like straight up, like there are some bad people in, in the military yeah. and, and it's unfortunate to say that, but it's the truth. I mean, you see it every day on blotters and, and, uh, you know, air force times, news feeds, you know, um, and it just, it, it pains me like to know that there are people that potentially that you work with or that are leading us that are doing these things, you know, unbeknownst to us. And, so that that's where the struggle is. I mean, and we're we're a micro microcosm of, of society. Like we're not the exception just because we're in the military. We're you know everything that happens in society absolutely tends to happen in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we can't like not think that you know bad things are going to happen because otherwise we'd be you know you and I'd be out of a job. We you know bad things happen and, and it's unfortunate and things like that are just. I mean, I'm just sitting here in shock just listening to that story because I'm, I've, I've never had to respond. I've responded to some child abuse stuff, but never, um, never to that extent. So, you talked about a little bit of taking a knee and uh, taking a tactical pause or you know tactical knee. Uh, like, where does um, where does family come in? Where's Brandy come in to all this? Are, do you? Do you bring some of those things home, and do you talk with her about this? Not necessarily that incident itself, but I mean, when you're having a rough day or you responded to a, a tough call, um, who who's your go-to? Is it Brandy? Is it a coworker? Is it you know a family member? Where where do you go? Wow. 
So I think that's something that I struggle with. Yeah. And I think that... I think all first responders, right? a majority of us do, not all, it's, but a majority it, of us do. Yeah, it, I think it's so hard for us to come back from a hard day and not bring your problems home. Mm-hmm. Like, that's hard. Yeah. And you can work as best as you can to try and not do it, but um, I do. I fail at bringing some of my anguish or anger mm-hmm. or... Um, like complete drainage and yeah. stress, I bring it home, yeah. and she'll be able to see it just as uh, I wear my I wear my emotions right on my face yeah. in my sleeve. Like yeah. she knows when I'm pissed, <laughs> she knows when I'm smoked, she knows when I'm irritated. She knows it. Yeah, I'm not good at hiding my emotion. Right. And Nor am I. Nor am I. Yeah. So, uh, I open up to Brandy when she asks, and uh, I'm very open. And I trust her with everything. She's, I mean, just like Megan for you, like yeah. She's my rock. I, mean, right. I know Megan's the same thing, and she'll comfort. Yeah. But it's a different style of comfort as mm-hmm. my spouse, as my as my bride, right. compared to when I need to go back. And most of the time, I will go back to a mentor. I'll yeah. go back to a past person that I know I can relate with that will put things in perspective. For sure. But I don't. Uh, I don't know how it is with you. I don't like to. Me personally, it's the kick in the ass that I need majority of the time that wakes me up a little bit or. It, kind of positively motivates me is mm-hmm. I need um, how should I say this I don't need uh, I need a strong mindsetted uh, mentor or leader to tell me this is what you went through this is what happened mm-hmm. not deal with it but you need to slowly accept it you yeah. need to figure out the positive out of it and you need to get ready because it's going to happen again someday yeah. You got people that depend on you. I am very much kind of like, I guess you could say, I look at it in a sports aspect of like, cool, you got hit, you got tackled, Mm -hmm. you're still up, you're fine, brush yourself up. Prepare for the next play. Prepare for the next play. Make sure you're good though, and prepare for the next play, get back in the huddle. Yeah. And I, I, that's how I connect with something. Yeah. But it has to be, the delivery has to be good. If somebody tells me, like, oh, you know. Suck it up. Suck it up. Yeah. You know, suck it up. You're just being, you're being soft or yeah. something like that. That's going to be like, all right, dude, let's back up. Yeah. Like, I need you to have understand you what I guys? just Oh, 100%. Right. Like, and I know you yeah. probably have too. Yeah. But I need someone to be like, dude, I hear you. Yeah. I got it. Like, you went through this. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's jump into how it's affecting you. Yeah. But I need you, Kalen, mm. to be ready for the next one yep. because you're gonna learn from this one, and I need you to be the stronghold and the linchpin for the next one. Yeah, that's what I connect to. That style of when it helps me afterwards. Yeah, yeah, I, I kind of, I, I feel the same way. Like, there's certain things that I feel comfortable telling Megan about, and then there's definitely some calls that I, I don't. Yeah. Um, because you know what's in my head, I don't want that in my wife's head, nor do I want it in my airman's head or my kid's head or anything like that. Like. You don't need those mental pictures. You don't. You don't want me to paint that portrait for you because it's it's not a pretty one. It's pretty gruesome. A lot of these you know responses that yeah. we go to. Um, so, but it does help. Like, don't get me wrong. I, I will chat with Megan sometimes on some of the calls, especially when it's it's you know kind of wearing on me a little bit, or I'm thinking about it a little bit more than I probably you know would any other call. Yeah. Uh, but having a coworker or you know somebody that you look up to, like you said, a phone a friend, um, you know, almost eighteen years in the military, I, I've got those people that I, I lean on um, and that I can go to, and that will you know, I always find it easier to talk to another first responder because typically they they've seen something similar to what you know that you just experienced, and so they have 
they have the knowledge and again that experience level that they can relate to and empathize with you as opposed to somebody just saying oh i'm really sorry you had to go through that like as as, as nice as that is for somebody to tell you that like it doesn't really help you get through it there's no empathy in it yeah like, and, you can't and, connect. and so yeah exactly there's no connection there and like and that's why i have a hard time telling my wife things because you know she works at the school and yeah. you know she was a stay-at-home mom for um, you know, 13 years. And so not that she can't be there for me because she absolutely is. And she's always telling me like, you know, tell me about, you know, what's going on. And she always wants to be there for me. But sometimes it's just difficult to tell your spouse or your loved one, like, um, you know, what really is going on in your world, um, outside of the fire department or outside of a first responder. Um, so I, I think finding, you know, whatever trauma that you've gone through in your life, finding that person, um, support groups are insanely helpful. Like people that have experienced like, um, you know, the passing of a loved one yeah. or, you know, sexual um, assault victims or something like that. I find those, as I get older, I find those groups like insanely helpful. Um, even like, and this isn't trauma, but like any, any social networking group that you can share a commonality with, I think the relation to those, you know, stories that people share in those sessions um, helps you understand, like, man, you're not the only one. Like, there are other people out there that have gone through the same trauma that you have, and they're, you know, successful in life, and they, you know, live, you know, a wonderful, beautiful life that uh, otherwise they could have been tortured by their demons and gone down the path of alcohol and drugs and, you know, homelessness and all these other things. Like, it could have... it. That monster could have just tore you down, yeah. Um, because of some of the responses that you've been to, or some of the traumatic experiences that you've had throughout your life, and um, it's it's because of those support networks that you build and that you have that help get you through those moments or those days where you struggle, or you know you had a random thought of you know a call that you went to or that traumatic experience that you went through, um, and you you talk to somebody about it or. The biggest thing for me, that call that I was telling you about where uh, that, that downed um, Hilo, um, one of my best friends, Bobby Payne, was, he was there with me the entire time. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it was on his birthday, too. And oh, um, him and I have known each other since our days at Lake and Heath, and we're absolutely great friends to this day. And, uh, but we talk about that. I actually just talked to him back in March, uh, on the 10th on his birthday about that call and, uh, just kind of reflecting on it. And I don't really see it as a somber moment anymore. Like I, it was tough initially, but when you talk to somebody that was on scene with you, um, or that went through that experience with you, um, huge connection. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, like nobody else experienced that yeah. ever. And, and you guys will talk about probably, you know, three or four more times the rest of your lives. Yeah, absolutely. It will, it will come up in discussion. Yeah, Yep. And, and so I, I think that's the biggest thing, finding those networks, finding those people that you can associate and relate with and that can talk to you or just listen. There, there's some power in just listening, like having somebody tell you their story and not saying a word and just sitting there and listening. Sometimes that's all people need is to get their thoughts and feelings off their chest. And then they're, you know, and then hopefully they're good. Um, but be that good friend. If you do have somebody that goes through a traumatic experience, be that good friend, that good um, family member, whatever the case may be, and be there for, for that person because that's, that's truly what they need at that moment. No, I absolutely agree. And, you know, obviously 
Chris and I have talked about a lot of scary scenarios and a lot of tough situations we've been in, but for all our viewers and listeners, I'll tell you this, my best moments though of my life mm -hmm. have been doing what I do yeah. and doing and you probably doing what you do, Chris. Yeah. Like there are with the scary times and the bad times that happen, there are probably 12 best times that happen in For that sure. day and the best laughs, the best memories, the best bonds, the best friendships occur with these incidents and um it develops who you are as a leader and it tests you every day of how capable you are, how flexible you are, how you can adapt to certain things and um test you mentally, physically, socially, spiritually, I mean everything and there are a lot of beautiful aspects of it, but there is an unbelievable feeling being able to serve your community in the fashion that you are a guardian. Yeah. And it, it's it's an incredible feeling, and uh, it's an honoring thing. Yeah. So before we wrap this up, Kalen, I want to you know um, give you an opportunity to, to give your folks over at the Brave Badge a shout-out real quick. So... For those first responders, especially our security forces community, um, but anybody in general, um, like the Brave Badge Initiative is an outstanding organization who is who are there. They're committed um, to helping the defender community. But uh, but please share some of the, the the ideas and thoughts behind the program and and how people can get the help that they need if they are struggling with a traumatic experience. Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate that. I wasn't expecting to plug with the, the uh, grateful. I know my whole team will be grateful once they listen to this. So um, the Brave Badge Initiative, uh, we stood up in 2018, is a social media mental health platform and resource. Um, our focus community is, of course, law enforcement and specifically security forces. But we have an array of followers uh, on our platform um, tons of emergency responders but different services as well we've got family members of suicides uh suicide uh members uh, we've got uh army members i mean across the board we're followed by not only are we followed but we're supported um, by a lot of key leaders uh, in the air force we're followed by two chief mass sergeant of the air forces many commanders many chief many big personnel um, across the military but what we are is we are, we've lauded a couple things. We created one of the, for the security forces in general. We created the first anonymous uh, messaging tool that uh, members can message our team anonymously, um, reducing the fear of reprisal for coming forward if they're struggling with something mentally um, or if they're struggling with suicide ideation or uh, potentially on the verge of attempt. Uh, we can be a, 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 a quick message to say I'm struggling with this and we will what we do is we share the anonymous messages on our platform we let positive we facilitate a lot of positivity and connection for people that have also have survived um, but on top of that daily we push out resources um, different programs that exist out there inspirational photos so on but on top of that if you were to message our team uh, with your identity um, being there you message our team you're going to talk to a lot of uh you're going to talk to five different security forces individuals that manage it daily that come with a lot of certifications a lot of compassion a lot of uh belief that there are methods to be a being able to reduce military suicides and my I'm, I'm grateful for my team a big shout out to christian campy brian thayer sean batson and david borrego for everything you do each day everything that your families do because just to say this is a 24 7 job for these guys that is a volunteer aspect 
away from their families and they do this to be able to prevent suicides and uh, we wake up in the middle of the night having to answer messages we work all day in the middle of while we're doing take care of our families or our regular primary duties and uh, it's to save airmen it's to save military members and we're here for everyone so thank you Chris I'm grateful for that yeah brother of course um, one other quick plug we just want to throw out the uh, National Suicide Prevention uh, Lifeline uh, 1-800-273-8255 so if you're one of those folks that um, is struggling you know with a traumatic experience in your life uh, whether it's personal or professional as a first responder or not um, please reach out get the help that you need talk to family members talk to friends because um, uh, or reach out to us at Unfiltered Leadership because we truly care um, about each and every one of you. And uh, truly want to thank everyone for listening to us. Kaylin, I kind of got chills a little bit, like just finishing up right there, but uh, um, because it's just something that's that's near and dear to me. Uh, I've seen too many suicides in my career as a first responder, and uh, you know, any, any one of those that I could have prevented, I would have happily have done. So uh, you got any closing thoughts? Last thing I just want to say, you know, it, oh, Brown and I, Chris and I would regret if we didn't take this opportunity. We want to say right now from the team, from Chris, Paul, and Kalen, um, thank you to all the emergency responders out yeah. there. You know, they, there's been many statistics and bi- many surveys that have come out that in the U.S. some of the most stressful jobs is, I think some of the top five are being an enlisted member, yeah. and being a airline pilot, a doctor, yeah. firefighter, <laughs> a law enforcement officer, yeah. all these different things. Right. And uh, it's it's kind of crazy when you're an enlisted member and you're a firefighter, enlisted or a member cop. and you're a cop. Yeah. You get the you're double downed on stress. Yeah. But for all the emergency responders out there and our medics too, and can't, our, our, can't medics, our medics, and, all those guys, yeah. thank you for everything that you do. Thank you for the sacrifices you make. Thank you to your family members. I mean that, and it is 100% uh, genuine where we're coming from because we we love you. You're our brothers and sisters, but uh. We relate with you and relate everything you've done. And we hope that maybe we just sparked one tiny aspect of this discussion to give you a little bit of hope if you've had a rough day, but more importantly, to get you ready for the next call because there are people that are going to need you tomorrow. And uh, we're grateful for you guys. Thank you for everything you do. Chris, back to you. Yeah. All right, y'all. So from a team of uh, Chris, Kalen, and Paul at Unfiltered Leadership, minus Paul today. Minus Paul today. But so, Paul's here in spirit. We love you, Paul. We'll see you soon. Yeah. All uh, right. So we hope everyone has a uh, fantastic weekend. Uh, Be safe, be kind, and uh, reach out when you need that helpful hand.